What is more terrifying to you? I want everyone to participate here. You're going to have to answer one or two, all right? So everyone warm up your fingers. Hold up one hand, one, one hand, one finger. Now hold up one hand, two fingers. All right, you're all capable. I expect you all to participate, all right? What is more terrifying to you? When you don't know exactly how much something costs, one, or when you do know exactly how much something is going to cost, Two, all right? Ready? If you think, camp one, put up one finger, when you don't know how much something is going to cost, that's most terrifying to you. All right? I'm reading the room here. All right? When you do know exactly how much something is going to cost, that's more terrifying to you. All right? We've got an even split here uh, in some ways, and I can respect that. I think there's something terrifying about both scenarios, right? Both ways hurt. And I can't tell you, as an example, maybe specifically, how many times I've dropped my car off at the shop, unsure about exactly what this is going to set me back, right? And that is an anxiety-producing moment. You're like, oh, man, I need a car. How much is this going to cost me? And then, so that's like category one. That's terrifying. I don't know. And then category two happens. I see the phone call from the auto shop coming up on my phone. Oh, man, that's a scary phone call to answer. And they pick up, and they're like, well, and you're like, what's the damage? And they tell you exactly how much it's going to cost to be able to survive as a, a human being in a modern, modern America with a car. Whew, that's terrifying. <laughs> and sometimes I think it gets worse because then after you give them the green light, a couple days or a couple hours later, you walk back into the shop, and they turn that little iPad screen around at you, and they have the nerve to expect you to pay exactly what they told you it was going to cost. When you have to pay what they told you you're going to have to pay, when the price that's quoted is what they expect you to contribute, man, that hurts. I say all of that as a way of setting up a bit of our theme for today, because we are in the book of Ruth. Would you join me in Ruth chapter 1? We still haven't made it out of the first chapter yet. Chapter 1, verse 19 is where we'll be picking it up today. We've labeled this series from sorrow to Savior, and we're still camping out in the sorrow portion of the story. Ruth is full of theology. It traces God's hand through life events. It teaches us about living with God and ultimately appoints us, we're going to see in the end, to Jesus. It's living doctrine out of a life of drama. Here we are in Ruth chapter 119. Last week, Pastor Jared, I think, left you with two grieving and impoverished Vulnerable women moving step by step into the care of their creator. They each had seemingly lost everything except for each other. And Naomi just gave the world's least convincing pitch to join God's covenant family, didn't she? We should have no fear or shame in inviting others into our life with God or into our church family because we just watched Ruth give a total catastrophe pitch about what it's like to belong to God's family. And still 50% of the people she was talking to joined. Right? She had said, hey, Israel is at the end of this road, if I paraphrase. 
But if my own experience of walking with God is any indicator about what this is going to be like for you, it might mean no husband, no provision, no security, no children, no hope, no future, or no rest. Don't you Moabites want to go back to Moab? And one of them chose that. The only thing Naomi knew could be counted on at the end of her road to Israel was having Yahweh as her God and belonging to him alongside the rest of his fickle people. She kind of drew up the calculation like this. Israel equals God plus nothing. Moab, on the other hand, seems to equal everything minus God. You do the math. Which one looks like the better arithmetic? Orpah had turned back. But an apparent faith had given Ruth a desire to commit to follow Naomi and to follow God. So we've seen so far that being in God's covenant family does not guarantee a life without pain. And you may not have needed the book of Ruth to teach you that. In the Christian life, there is a cost to count when you belong to the Lord. Jesus would say it this way a few centuries later. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Luke 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross cannot come after me, cannot be my disciple. That's the price we're quoted. But what happens when the price we're quoted is something we're expected to pay? When father, mother, and siblings, and children, and all that we have, yes, even our own lives are asked for, when these things are kept by our creator, by their creator, what then? When God's resources aren't entrusted to us anymore, what do we do? How can we, Christians, how can we walk forward, move forward by faith when instead of receiving pleasure, we receive and experience pain? Now, I hope you're in some communities of people where you have seen that story lived out. What a faith-building experience to see and hug and know and walk alongside a sister or a brother in Christ who is, by faith, moving forward when they've received pain. We'll soon see today, as we look at these two women, one with bitter faith and one with new faith, that they arrive in Bethlehem, and I'm praying that we'll learn how to walk by faith through pain as we watch their story unfold. And we're going to see, in fact, in a little bit, four truths that I hope can help us learn to hope, even in seasons of hardship. 
So Ruth 1, 19. First verse here says this. So the two of them, we're down to Naomi and Ruth. The two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? They walked for several days, Ruth leaving home forever. Naomi returning to a place that was filled with happy memories for her of people that she'll never get to see on this earth and this life again. I kind of have to think that neither one of them felt like they were arriving home. And they make their final approach through fields of barley filled with busy workers. And they pass through the gate and they make their way through the streets that are crowded with for Naomi long unseen faces. But st- standing in familiar places at that shop they always owned. In that home that she always lived in with those kids that look so much older now. But the town is stirred up in conversation and a murmur begins to spread from person to person, shop to shop, and woman to woman. Is this, is that Naomi? Is it, do you think that's Naomi? They, they can't be sure that they recognize this as Naomi. Sure, a decade can change someone's experience, you know, physical appearance. But for Naomi, I think these have been some city miles here. Pain and loss and fear and bitterness, they've shaped Naomi. And her company has changed. When she left over a decade ago from Bethlehem and hugged goodbye to her friends and neighbors and family, they watched her walk away alongside a strong husband and two young, strapping sons. And she walks back now, and they're like, well, where's Elimelech? And where are your two fine boys? You were this rose between these thorns. Where are the grandchildren you ought to have by now? Who is this foreigner that's with you? I don't make sense of who you are with your company. The gossiping glances, they're all saying the same thing. Is this Naomi? And it kind of almost feels like this is one of those like cowboy tropes where the bad guy walks into town and the whole place goes quiet and a tumbleweed rolls across the scene. And where there was a busy town, all of a sudden the commotion dies down and people dart inside their shops and Naomi looks from left to right beneath her bandana and doesn't see anyone, doesn't hear a thing. But she can tell that behind every shop window there's eyes lurking at her and all the hushed conversation is asking, is this Naomi? It's almost like this. Right? I, I get the sense that this is Bethlehem at that moment, right? Naomi with Ruth standing in the middle of the street and all the whispers. Who is this? Is this Naomi? And so Naomi breaks the ice. It's me. Hi, I'm Naomi. It's me. Taylor Swift people got that. But really, she's, she's going to turn the page and she's going to say, no, it's, it's me, but I'm not me anymore. She goes on, verse 20. She said to them, do not call me Naomi, 
Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? She said, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. We can hear her pain here, can't we? Naomi has been through some bitterly hard times. Her name, we've heard now several times, meant what? It meant delightful or pleasant. She can't resonate with that identity anymore, though. She feels like a completely different person because she says the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. She sees that God has acted in ways that have brought her pain, and she is taking now her identity from her sorrow. She's changing her name because Mara is the Hebrew term for bitter one, bitterness. She's saying, I'm no longer the delightful one. My name is Mara. I think it's one thing to have a bitterly hard life. But it's another thing to allow those circumstances to become your identity, isn't it? It's one thing to have a hard life. It's another thing to allow that to become your sense of who you are. It's the difference between saying, I'm a Bears fan, and feeling like, I'm a loser. Okay, okay, maybe that's too close to home. Right, but there's a difference there. I'm a Bears fan. My identity isn't that I'm not able to win anything for a very, very, very long time, and I don't have worth, or I don't matter. Right, like, there's a difference there. And if some of us are blurring the lines of that difference on Sunday afternoons, someone should seek the Lord, right? There's a difference between knowing I'm a parent and knowing or thinking or feeling my children's behavior or success defines me. I'm afraid to go out in public, or I'm afraid to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because there's a difference between what you've experienced in life and what you allow to define you. Between I'm divorced versus feeling I'm undesirable, on and on and on, we could run afoul of this in many ways. The events of our lives don't get to define the people of God. She gives a number of reasons why she feels like she has a new identity that is bitterness. Her reasons start with this. She says, God has emptied me. She says, I went away full, verse 21, but the Lord has brought me back empty. She thinks, God has emptied me. So now I'm going to embrace this identity of bitterness. On the one hand, this statement is ironic. She claims that she left Bethlehem full and is returning empty. Is that the storyline? Is that how she left Bethlehem? On, on the surface, this statement is false, right? She didn't leave Bethlehem full. Why did she leave Bethlehem 10 years ago? Famine. She left Bethlehem hungry. She left Bethlehem empty. She left as a, a you know, refugee status victim of famine. She's returning back still alive and nourished, well-fed to a town that's harvesting grain. Isn't suffering able to do that, though? Isn't our pain able to narrow our perspective and cause us only to see the, the pain 
the suffering that we're experiencing close at hand and to miss and forget all God's gracious goodness to us besides. Man, suffering can do that. But of course, Naomi's referring to a much deeper pain, stronger than hunger. She's talking about the fullness of a family, of a future that now she does not have. But I still think this statement is poetically painful. See, we get, we get this ordered in ways that make sense in English grammar, but the way that Naomi says this in Hebrew is a very intentional way. She says this, and if we translate, transliterated it, it would be like this. She says, I, full, went away, but empty brought me back Yahweh. That kind of sounds like Yoda talked to us, but like, that's the word order she chose to construct this sentence with we get from God's word. And a couple of thoughts here. By inversing an ordinary Hebrew structure and putting the descriptive word in front of her verb, in front of her action, full went away, empty brought me back, she's emphasizing the way she's feeling as she experiences this bitterness of God. But even more than that, I think it's incredibly insightful that she puts herself on one end of the sentence. And what's the very last word on the far opposite end of that sentence? Yahweh. In her pain, the way she senses this, now she's distant from God. Polar opposites set against each other, feeling far from him. Have any of us ever felt that way before? That's where Naomi is right now. But she has more reasons. She goes on to say, God has testified against me. She says, why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me in verse 21? Naomi is maybe wondering, feeling guilty. I think we sinned when we left Israel all those years ago. I think we didn't have faith to just live in repentance and call our community into repentance and depend on our covenant God. I think we ran like a prophet later named Jonah would do instead of following in faith. Maybe this is punishment from God. I, I think we sinned when Elimelech and I allowed our sons to marry foreign women that we were called not to allow them to do, but what were you going to do? And so we, we let it slide and now I feel like this is judgment from God. She feels like God is testifying against her. She's reading all of her sorrows as final judgments from God. And there's no more hope. And there's no more future. She gives a third reason, though, for her bitterness. In her thoughts, she thinks another reason would be that God has destroyed her. She says, God's destroyed me. She says, the Almighty has brought calamity Upon me. She sees her life as a catastrophe. And when you see tragedies in your life, it can become all that you see. Disasters can become your destruction, depending on your perspective. And so taken together, Naomi is thinking, God has emptied me. God has testified against me. God has destroyed me. And Naomi puts those thoughts on playlists over again, on repeat, in her mind, God has emptied me. God has testified against me. God has destroyed me. It becomes her theme song. It becomes her bitter banner over her life. It becomes 
her new identity. And so, welcome to Bethlehem, Mara. It's a bad way to be. And without the right view of God, our lives are sure to become defined by the wrong things, just like Naomi. Without a right view of God, who he is and what he does, we all are sure to be defined by the wrong things. So today I want to share four hope-producing truths that we should cling to during pain. Four hope-producing truths that can prevent us from becoming defined by bitterness. And the first one, Naomi actually got right. She was one-fourth of the way there. Because the first truth we have to cling to is the fact that God is indeed sovereign over all things. It's God, Ephesians 1 tells us, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God is sovereign over all things. And Naomi sees that behind every triumph and tragedy, every famine and feast, every friend and every funeral, God is the one who is the ultimate cause. And she's right. God is sovereign over all things. Naomi continually expresses that God has brought about her life circumstances. And also, I think Naomi reveals this aspect of her theology through the names she uses as she talks about God. She uses specific titles and names for God that I think reveal she knew he was sovereign. She says, Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Almighty is what she calls God. She says, Almighty has brought calamity upon me. She's using the title for God, Almighty, in Hebrew, Shaddai, where God had revealed himself as Shaddai, as Almighty, throughout the Genesis history, at times where really humans, Abraham and then Jacob, were at their very least unable to have children, unable to find a land and protection, and God shows up to them at those specific times throughout the Genesis story and says, I am Shaddai, I am Almighty. I am the one who is strong and in control. And Naomi also says that it's the Lord, Yahweh, who has testified against me. The Lord, Yahweh, who has brought me back empty. That's the name that God had revealed of himself to Moses, the I am that I am. In fact, in that moment, God is using both of these terms together and giving us a brief synopsis of his revelation of himself, Exodus 6. God spoke to Moses and said, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty, as Shaddai, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. It's interesting the way our understanding of who God is by what we call him shapes and defines the way we respond to him, the way we follow him. We know that. You know that. The name you call somebody reveals the way you're feeling about them, doesn't it? Like when you use their full name, it means you're not feeling good about who they are right now, right? Jared Dean Bryant. Why aren't you at Cedar Lake today? Who is this imposter? Get him out of here. Or when you use a nickname, an endearing term for somebody, it reveals that you feel good about them, right? Like, Bill, darling, buddy. When you use nicknames for somebody, it reveals the way you feel about them. It reveals something about who you know that they are. 
The name we use reveals the way we feel, what we know. So it's interesting that Naomi calls God by his right names, by descriptive titles revealing his sovereignty. And yet, at the same exact time, knowing his name, knowing his character, knowing something about him, she wants to be called by a different name herself that reflects her pain at his hand. She understands his identity, but she misunderstands her identity. She wants to be wholly identified by her loss, not by her trust in Almighty Yahweh. How easy it is for you and I to know about God, but not trust the God we know about. Psalm 9 would encourage us. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. A stronghold in the times of trouble. And those who know your name, God, put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Warren Wearsby said it like this. I read this this week. It's one thing to know God's name. And it's quite something else to trust that name and allow God's work in difficult situations in life. Man. That, that's the difference between knowing and knowing God. Trust, isn't it? That's the difference. Knowing that these are chairs and then sitting in them are two different types of knowledge. Trust makes the difference. Naomi seems to have an accurate, though not complete, vision of God's sovereignty. She was right. God is sovereign, is almighty, is a covenant-making God. But she made her own life harder by making her pain her persona instead of his character. Naomi made her pain her persona. And our pain doesn't need to define us. Our problems should not become our personas. We can avoid Naomi's mistake by embracing the three additional truths we can know about God that she missed. Because God is sovereign over all things, but then also we need to hold to this. God is not morally responsible for the evil that he is sovereign over. God is not morally responsible for the evil he is sovereign over. And you may have no clue where I'm going with this. And frankly, we all have a hard time understanding this. And I don't have time to give a full theodicy here. But though we struggle to get it, the Bible clearly teaches that God is sovereign over evil without being held guilty for the sins committed or the natural tragedies that occur in our world under the curse. And this produces hope. Let me get there. One example, though, to reference, to illustrate this truth. In the Psalms, a psalmist retells the story of God at work and the people of Israel in their nation's history. And in Psalm 105, he gives a retelling of the enslavement of the Israelite people. And, and listen to this. And pay attention to the words the psalmist Scripture uses. He says, Then Israel came to Egypt. 
Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And the Lord, he's responsible here, he's sovereign here. The Lord made his people fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. Man, isn't it easy to give a sovereign God credit for the good things that come in life? That feels right. That feels simple. That I can get. Praise God. But then listen to what it says in verse 5. He, God, turned their, Egyptians, he turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. Wait a second. This feels harder. I don't get how that can happen. What's going on here? Scripture tells us that it is God who is the one who is ultimately sovereign over the Egyptians hating and enslaving his own people. And yet, we hold at the same time the truth, Colossians, it's our first John 1, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. How can God be sovereign over uh, people enslaving another people and hating them and be light with no darkness? How are both of those things possible? We cannot demand that God reveal the mystery of how he can turn a heart into hatred of his people without having a sinful heart or hateful hands himself. And we are wise to be silent before God we cannot fully comprehend. How unsearchable are his judgments? How inscrutable are his ways? Romans 11. And it's fair for us to hold that tension out there because in seasons of pain, it does not help to be trite. But this truth does give us hope when our lives are torn apart by tragedy or torn apart by our own sin. Because God is neither losing control of our world nor is he losing control of his character in any scenario. God is not morally responsible for the evil he is sovereign over, which means he's not losing control of the world when it goes wrong and he's not losing control of his character, though he's sovereign. Next, a third truth to cling to is that God has the right to his sovereignty over our successes and our sufferings. Naomi could have found hope in seeing that God as God has the right to his absolute sovereignty, but it doesn't seem like that was the experience she was having as she bittered herself into Bethlehem. As an example of someone who did respond this way, I think Pastor Jared reminded us about Job just last week, didn't he? That in an hour, a rich man lost everything, and yet his response to that tragedy under the sovereignty of God was, in Job 1, to arise, tear his robe, shave his head, fall on the ground, and complain. Worship. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God has the right to his sovereignty. Job worships God. He defends God's right to both give and take. Job's worship proves that Job actually got sovereignty. Naomi, Naomi knew that it was God who was the cause. But her response was, woe, not worship. God has the right to his sovereignty. And then finally, 
God is good in every sovereign act. It's a truth that leads to hope and pain. God is good in every sovereign act. How many of you were at Verge Winter Retreat just last weekend? You guys spent time in the book of Genesis looking at the life of Joseph. And Joseph kind of has a mirror story to Naomi. He goes through his own series of setbacks. His family hates him. He's sold off. He's falsely accused. He goes to prison. It's a bad life. Years later, though, God has elevated him to become the most, really second most powerful person on the known earth. And like Naomi, his own people, his own family didn't recognize him when they showed up to his town. Time and trial have changed Joseph. And he has a chance to get revenge on them. But he tells his cruel brothers what in Genesis 50? What you meant for evil, God meant for what? You meant for evil against me. God meant it for good. God is good in every sovereign act. Like Naomi, Joseph sees that everything in his life was caused by a sovereign God. However, Joseph had something Naomi didn't have. Joseph believed in the goodness of God in everything. Believer, you have received nothing from God that is not love. Love is the hand inside the glove of tragedy. Ultimately, every time, for those in Christ. For those in Christ, it's good in the end. In the end. And these are hope-building truths about our sovereign God. But they do not undo the reality of the pain that you have experienced. So how can we walk forward in faith with a sovereign God when he allows, when he is sovereign over pain? When the price that is quoted for discipleship is requested of our lives, what then? Maybe we could say it this way. How do we avoid bitterness and suffering? I want to give three closing applications out of these truths that might help us apply them in life. And the first is this. Let's not pretend that we are that sovereign God. That's how we avoid bitterness and suffering. Don't pretend that we are the sovereign God. This is what I mean. Brothers and sisters, let's use cautious humility when we are interpreting life events and what they might mean or what God might be doing in and through them. Cautious humility. Naomi seemed convinced that God was testifying against her in her pain, and that led to bitterness. That may have been part of the picture. It may have. But it should not have been her whole identity, because it sure wasn't all that God was up to. She didn't know, and she jumped ahead of him trying to be a sovereign God that she was not. It is good to be self-reflective for sin. 
And it is good to praise God when we see something that appears to be his work of blessing. It's good to do both those things. But we should keep in mind that we always ever know only a tiny fraction of what God is up to. So in seasons of good, we are cautiously, humbly still dependent on him as we praise him. Knowing we don't know the outcome of this blessing. We don't know what's around the corner and it's not ours to hold as if we are the owner. As if we deserved it. And when we experience pain, we're cautiously humble. Because we only know a tiny fraction of what God is doing. It's too simple to say any single event is a consequence for sin. It's too simple to say any single event is a blessing from God. It's more helpful to acknowledge we don't know the entirety of what anything is for. And so, praise God. He does. And he's good. What we do know is that everything is a manifestation of God Almighty's love. That's what we're certain of at every turn. Next, another application to avoid bitterness and suffering. Let's live in worship of our sovereign God. Let's live in worship to our sovereign God, to our sovereign God. Ruth chapter 1 shows us, if anything, a God that we can't domesticate, understand, or control. Aren't we glad? So we must worship God as who he is. A God who's sovereign. And everything from toothaches to triple bypasses. A God who is sovereign. And everything from where a leaf or a leader falls. A God who is sovereign over our career paths and our cancer pathologies. A God who is sovereign over every single grain of sand in the Indiana State Dunes and over every single star in the Indiana night sky. Let's learn to see God's sovereignty in everything. Let's choose to worship. Let's choose for worship to be our response to him. And finally, a hope-building application for us is to trust in the goodness of our sovereign God. Trust in the goodness of our sovereign God. Because doesn't God's goodness kill bitterness? Doesn't God's goodness kill bitterness? Because to be bitter, what I have to believe is that I know better than God. And he made the wrong play here, buddy. Isn't that what we're ultimately saying? I know. God, God doesn't know what he's doing. This isn't fair. This isn't right. This isn't best. To be bitter, I have to think that I know better than God. I've heard it said this way. If we knew what God knows, we would ask for exactly what God has given. If we knew what God knows, we would ask for exactly what God has given us every day of our life. And that's our problem, though, isn't it? We don't know what God knows. What do we know? How much better than to trust the one who does and is good? That seems like a better way to live life to me. The proof that God is good and can use evil to accomplish his good purposes then is, I heard it called out in the room earlier, the cross of Jesus Christ. 
That is the proof that God is good and uses even evil to accomplish his good purposes. Because in the cross, Romans 5, God shows his love for us and that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. In the cross, Romans 8, he who did not spare his son but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Since God was willing to give his son, we can know even in our pain, God is for us. God is sparing nothing that is not needed. God is giving everything that is good even when we don't understand it or see it or know it or want it or survive it. God is good and we can trust him. Sisters and brothers, when you walk through pain or hardship in life, the cross is the proof that you can trust the sovereign goodness of your God. The author wraps up the end of the first chapter with a bit of a summary statement and a context clue for what God's sovereign goodness is up to. He says this in verse 22. So, Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, I wonder why a sovereign God has led these two specific women through their specific pain into this specific town at this specific time of year during this specific grain's harvest. Huh. Do you think God just might be about to display his sovereign goodness and grace and kindness to Naomi and beyond? Come back next week to see what God's doing. But I think we should find it ironic. Naomi is walking into town so certain that God is against her, that God is bringing calamity down on her. She's so sure of this that she takes on a whole new identity, not as one who trusts him, but as one who experiences pain. She's so sure of that as she walks into town. She changes her name. And yet, she was walking into town past fields full of people harvesting barley. The very place and the very way that Naomi's gracious God was already, before time began, prepared to bring a harvest of his sovereign kindness into her life and through her family, bless the entirety of the world through a descendant, Jesus Christ. She was in that field of his sovereign kindness, feeling absolute bitterness. Girl is feeling bitter and fields full of blessing. Isn't that ironic? Hasn't that been my life so many times? Man, what's the difference between bitter and blessed? A hope in a sovereign God. That's the difference between bitter and blessed. Christian, are you alive? Are you in seasons of pain or will they come? You can trust your sovereign God. And know this. Who knows? You and I, we may have driven unaware and unhappy 
past the fields of our blessing and his kindness to us this morning, even though we are unaware of a bit of it. That's who our God is. Let's trust him.